Uh, please remain standing as we read the scripture uh, this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, groups minister here. Super excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11, and we're going to be talking about two pretty spicy topics this morning. We're going to continue talking about predestination and election, which Jeff did a fantastic job last week of dealing with a difficult text, and we're also going to try to answer the question of whether or not a true Christian can lose their salvation what is called unconditional election, and then perseverance of the saints. We're going to deal with both of those this morning. Before we do, I want to tell you a quick story. I've mentioned in here before the story of when and how I met my wife. So we actually met at a mutual friend's birthday party, and she basically proposed to me the first time that she met me. She asked me what I was going to school to study, and I let her know I was studying theology, that I wanted to be a pastor, and I asked her what she wanted to do, and she's like, oh, you know, maybe be like a pastor's wife. And I was like... Did, did, what just happened? What just happened right now? I, she basically proposed. She decided, I think, at that moment that she wanted to become a pastor's wife after I said that. But anyway, so we, we hit it off really well, and then we went home, and I remembered her name. Her name was Katie Martin. Martin was her maiden name. And, uh, but when she went home, she couldn't remember what my name was. So apparently, we had this great love connection that uh, she couldn't remember what my name was. So she asked her friend, hey, what was the name of that guy that I met at the party? And her friend decided to play a prank on her. And her friend said that my name was David Poupet. That that was my name, like that it was French or something like that. So now Katie has to think, wait a second. If I end up dating this guy and we end up getting married, I might have to be Mrs. Poupet. Am I willing to do that? Am I w- By the way, if that's your last name in here today, I just want to apologize. I didn't know that was your last name, and I just want to apologize that that is your last name. Uh, High school must have been rough. So uh, anyway, so she thinks, okay, if I date this guy and we get married, I'm going to have to be Katie Poupay. Is this really the relationship that I want to go forward with? And she decides, thankfully to me, yes. Yes, it is. Now, she was relieved to find out that my name was Zach Lee instead. All right, so now all she has to do is, all she has to deal with is people assuming that she's Asian before they meet her, but the last name is not Poupay, all right? And so the reason I start with that is because that's kind of what election is like, that God doesn't choose the people with the prettiest name or the most morally inclined people or the smartest or the greatest people. In fact, God chooses to save people with the worst name, people who are broken. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And aren't we glad? Aren't we glad? And so today we're going to be talking about election, predestination, okay? By the way, if anything in here today I say is new to you, it's not new to Christianity. This has historically been the biblical position of Protestants. 
This has historically been the biblical position of Baptist, believe it or not. This has been the position of Parkway for years. This isn't something new that our staff is bringing in. Jerry's been preaching Reformed theology for years. So if you hear something in here today that sounds new, it's only new to you. But it is difficult, and we're going to work through it. Let me give you a definition that uh, Jeff mentioned last week, and I want to read it again. Predestination is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved and some people to be condemned, not on account of any foreseen merit or demerit in them or any future decision they would make, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Ouch! That's what we're talking about today. That I am saying that before the foundation of the world, God decided who he would save and who he would not save. And we're going to see, not only is that biblical, but we're going to try to answer the question, how is that good news? How is that good news for us? We're going to look at that today. So let me give you some scary theological terms that some people use kind of as if they're bad words, but they're not. They're good and helpful terms. Two different positions. On one end of the spectrum, you have a theological position called Calvinism. You might have heard Calvinism growing up. You might have had a pastor disparagingly talk about Calvinism. It's named after a guy named John Calvin. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a position called Arminianism. Arminianism. And those who follow that are called Arminians. Not Armenians. That's like a people group in the Middle East. That's totally different. That'll really confuse you. The Arminians, they're named after a guy named Jacob Arminius. Okay, so these are two ends of the theological spectrum when we talk about election. Both of which will say that God chooses us and that we choose God. Okay, both of which will say that. The question is, which one is the cause and which one is the effect? Both sides agree that we choose God and he chooses us. Which one comes first, though? And today, I'm going to support the position, which I think is the biblical position, that God chooses us first and therefore we respond, not the other way around. Calvinists also believe that one cannot lose their salvation, whereas Arminian would believe, yes, you can lose your salvation. So if all that's confusing, we're going to work that out. Just remember this. Calvinism, good. Arminianism, boo, bad, all right? We're going to work that out. I'm going to explain why that is, okay? Now, here's the thing. We're not trying to just follow the teachings of some man named John Calvin. Calvin didn't invent this idea. He got it from a guy named Augustine. And Augustine didn't invent this idea. He got it from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul didn't invent it. He got it from God. To be a Calvinist is to try to be biblical. That's all we're trying to do in here today. And so I actually saw a great shirt you can get online. And on the front of it, it says, Arminianism, I chose this shirt. And on the back, it says, Calvinism, this shirt chose me. All right? So we're going to be talking about what, do, what does the Bible mean by predestination? What does it mean by election? I often tease young guys, if they're in seminary or studying theology, I let them know, listen, if you want to find the girl that God has ordained for you, marry a Calvinist. Do not marry an Arminian girl because she will leave you of her own free will, okay? So that's what I tell them. Now, one more thing before we get into this very difficult text. If at any point during this sermon, does it seem to you like God is unloving, or unjust or unkind. The problem is not with God or his word or his doctrine. The problem is always with us, okay? So we need to know that going in, that when we come to the text, if there's ever a time where God seems unloving or unjust or not gracious or unkind, the problem is not with God. He's doing just fine. The problem is with us. The problem is with us. So give me a hearing. Hear me out as we walk through this text. Let's start in verse 11. Verse 11, let's do the first part of verse 11, 11a. In him, that's in Christ, we, that's Christians, have obtained an inheritance. 
Now, this sentence actually can be interpreted two different ways. The way the ESV translators have taken it here is, in him we've obtained an inheritance, which is true. We do obtain an inheritance in Christ. If that's the meaning of this text, what this text is simply saying is this, that by knowing Christ, we have an inheritance because everything belongs to him. You see, the Christian lives in this weird dichotomy in that, in one sense, we own nothing and we're to be servants of everybody. But on the other hand, we own everything because Christ owns everything and we belong to Christ. Martin Luther says a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, subject to all. However, I don't think that this is the best interpretation of this phrase. Okay, so everybody stay with me real quick. We're going to do a little language work. If I were to say in English, I hit the ball, who is doing the action of that sentence? Me, I am, right? I'm the one hitting the ball. If I say I was hit by the ball, now I'm receiving an action. Is that clear? Okay. In Greek, this verb that's used here is passive. It's receiving an action. Literally, this verse says in Greek, in him we were inherited. In him we were inherited. That's what it says literally in Greek. Here it makes it sound like the emphasis is on the fact that we have an inheritance, which is true theologically, but I think this sentence in Greek is just, in him we were inherited. If that's what the text is saying, like I think that it is, what it's saying is that God has inherited believers. Those in Christ are God's heritage. They are God's possession. Not only is that the, makes the most sense of that Greek sentence, but I'll give you some passages from the Old Testament that show this idea. Deuteronomy 9, 29. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 32, 9. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. I think what Paul is trying to say here, with the same idea that Jeff talked about being adopted in Christ last week, is to say, if you know Christ, you are God's inheritance. You are God's inheritance. This text is saying that God selects a people specifically to be his people like he did Israel, okay? Okay, now I I need to destroy something real quick in our thinking. When it comes to predestination, what some people think that God does is that he looks ahead in the future, sees who's going to believe in Christ, and then chooses them. You ever heard that idea or thought that idea? That God looks ahead in the future and says, okay, Bob's gonna choose me, Susie's not going to choose me. And he sees who's going to choose him, and then he chooses them back. I think that is completely backwards. I think that is like throwing a dart and drawing a bullseye around it. And the reason I think that are for a few reasons. Let me tell you why that makes no sense. One, if God looks ahead in the future and sees who's going to choose him, then it means that that decision is already set, right? Who set that if not God himself? Let me say that again. So if I'm God and I look forward, I look ahead into the future and I see who's going to choose me, it's already set. Who set and determined that future I'm looking into if not me as God? It makes no sense logically. We have a tendency to say something like, God knew this was going to happen. That's true, but that's not strong enough. God doesn't just know know things, he ordains things. Or we'll say that God allowed this to happen. That's not strong enough. God doesn't just allow things, he ordains things. So the first problem, logically, is God is not looking ahead into a future that he didn't determine. The second problem, and Jeff mentioned this last week, is that if God were to look ahead in the future to see who would choose him, 
Biblically, how many people would? Zero. There is, quote, none who seeks for God, no, not one. I sought for God, wrong. There's none who seeks for God, no, not one. So if God looks ahead in the future to see who's going to choose him, the answer is 100% of people will reject him. 100% of people will reject him if he looks ahead to see who's going to choose him. The only options are God looks ahead and sees that no one chooses him and he damns all of us, or in his grace, he has an inheritance. He has an allotted portion that he determines is going to be his family, is going to be his family. Verse 11b. In him we've obtained an inheritance, 11b, having been, what's the word? Predestined, okay? You cannot say, I don't believe in predestination. That doesn't make any sense. The word is in the Bible multiple times. The question is not, does the Bible use the word predestination? The answer is yes, we just read it. It's the same thing in Greek, pro orizo, predestination. The question is, on what grounds does God predestine? On what grounds does God predestine? The Calvinist says that the reason God predestines is based on something in God, that it's unconditional. It's not based on some condition in the person he decides to save, but rather it's based upon something in God. The Arminian believes in what's called conditional election, that God selects someone for salvation based upon something in that person, okay? So I want you to see as we read the rest of this text whether or not God elects based upon him and something in God, or whether or not God elects based upon something within the person. You ready? Verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, or we were inherited, 11b, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. According to this text, the reason God selects someone or doesn't select them for salvation is not based upon something in the person. It's based upon the fact that God is the kind of God that works everything according to the counsel of his will everything according to the counsel of his will. In fact, the election or reprobation of mankind is just a subset of God's bigger overarching sovereignty. Let me read you some passages that not only talk about God's sovereignty over everything, but also talk about election. I want you to see that I'm not basing this argument I'm making today off one obscure text in Ephesians, that it is a thoroughly biblical idea. We're gonna throw these texts up on the screen rapid fire style, so get ready, here we go. Psalm 135, six. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as luck. Whatever God does, he wants, okay? Daniel 4.35, I know that everybody probably has this verse crocheted on a pillow somewhere in their house. It's such an encouraging verse. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay, Zach, it sounds like God is sovereign. Does that mean he's sovereign just generally over everything, or is he even sovereign over the minutia? Is he even sovereign over, I don't know, whether a bird falls from the sky or not? Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Okay, Zach, God seems sovereign over even the little things. Is he even sovereign over evil? Exodus 4.11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I've always wondered what the prosperity gospel guys, kind of the word of faith movement guys, do with that verse. That the reason sometimes you are born with a deformity is not because you don't have enough faith, 
but rather because God decided to do something with it. Not only that, we see his sovereignty in election, like Jeff mentioned last week, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as, who chose who? Even as he chose us. Listen, you didn't find Jesus. Jesus wasn't lost. Jesus found you. You were lost. I was lost. Jesus wasn't lost, and we weren't looking for him. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Let's keep going. I want to sufficiently beat this dead horse. 2 Timothy 1.9. Who saved us, that's God, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not based on something in us, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. Here's another one. Revelation 17.8. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel that God has a book of life and he has people written in that before the foundation of the world. Acts 13.48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? As many as who were appointed. Hey, Ted, when we did the revival, how many people believed? As many people as were appointed. What about uh, other people? Did any of them believe? No. All right. Romans 9, 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In this passage, you have a woman who is pregnant, and before the kids do anything good or bad, they're just little kids in the womb, God says, I'm going to set my love on one, and I'm not going to set my love on the other one. Now, these are tough. These are difficult texts. Zach, if what you're saying is true, that means that God doesn't treat everyone the same. Look at me. That's exactly what I'm saying. God is many things, but he is not fair if you define fair as treating everyone the same. God is not a Marxist, if you want to say it that way. God is fair in the sense that he's just, but he's not fair in the sense that he treats everyone the same. He loves Jacob and hates Esau. He selects Israel. He doesn't select the other nations. He determines when a kid will be born in a Christian family and get to hear the gospel, and when a kid will be born in a Muslim family in Saudi Arabia and never hear the gospel. The biggest objection to what I'm saying today is that people say, wait a second, that means that God is not fair, and that's exactly what I'm saying. God's not a respecter of persons, which means he's not impressed with anyone, but he certainly doesn't treat everyone the same. Because here's the deal. Look at me. This is really important. If you want God to be fair, everyone gets hell. If God is fair, if God gives people what they deserve and God treats everyone the same, then the verdict for all of mankind is hell, period. That's it. I don't want God to be fair. I want grace. I want mercy. I want God to say 100% of people will reject me. So the only two options is either sending everyone to hell or I'm going to set my love on this one and I'm going to set my love on this one and I'm going to set my love on this one. He doesn't have to do that. You see, the only people that don't like predestination are people that think that they would have chosen Christ naturally on their own. 
When we say that God is not fair, we have a tendency to say that he's not fair because he damns people. We're fine with him being unfair and that he gives people grace because we presume upon his grace. When you realize that the default position for every human born is hell, now you see why Paul mentions predestination as he's praising God. You now see why it's a good thing. Let me give you an example. Let's say five guys break into my house and they murder my family. Okay, that's sorry for the extreme example. I'm not an angry person. Five guys break into my house. They kill my wife, my unborn daughter, and my son. And as they're sitting there in the courtroom, there's five of them, they're all guilty. And the judge says, you know what? I'm gonna let you two go free, but not these other three. I'm gonna let you two go free. I'm going to lose my mind that two people were shown clemency who shouldn't have received it. But for some reason, when it comes to predestination, we do the opposite with God. We assume that he owes everyone salvation or owes everyone this. We forget that he owes everyone damnation. Everything else is his grace. This is one of the reasons I hate entitlement because the only thing God owes anyone is hell. Anything else is a gift. So when you realize that no one would choose Christ, now you see why predestination is a good thing. It's a gracious thing. What I'm trying to do today is I'm trying to paint a picture of God that is maybe bigger than you've thought of him before. If I'm a potter, someone who works with pottery, and I make a jar, and I put it up on the shelf, put it up on the mantle in my living room, do I have a right to do that? If I make a piece of pottery, a jar, and I want to smash it on the ground, do I have a right to do that? Yes, because that jar does not exist without me. You see, the question I'm really trying to get you to answer in your own life today is this, is God, does, can God literally do whatever he wants with his creatures? Can God literally do whatever he wants with his creatures? And surely you've seen this in your own life if you're a Christian. I grew up and went to church almost every Sunday. I heard about Jesus dying on a cross every Sunday. I heard about Jesus being raised from the dead every Sunday. Why was it that I actually came to faith when I was a senior in high school? Why a message that I've heard a thousand times, why finally did it click one day? And the reason is, is because God decided to open my heart, which he had not done previously. Let's say I'm uh, doing kind of an old school Billy Graham style revival, and I do an altar call. Let's say there's a hundred lost people, and I preach the gospel, and I say, if you want to become a Christian, come forward and pray to receive Christ. Let's say I'm preaching to a hundred lost people. And let's say 10 people come forward. Why did those 10 people come forward and not the other 90? Were those people just smarter than the other 90? They're like, well, let's see. Texas is hot, so hell must be really hot. So I don't want to go there, so I'm going to believe in Jesus. Is that why they came forward? Are they just more morally inclined? Are they just better decision makers? No, the reason that those 10 come forward and the other 90 don't is because I'm preaching to 100 dead people and dead people can't respond unless God wakes them up. If that's not true, then the people in heaven can basically look down on the people in hell and say, you should have been smart like me. You should have chosen Christ. You should have been a good decision maker. You should have really listened to the arguments being made. No, the reason that those 10 believe and the other 90 don't is because God opened the hearts of 10 dead men when he's required to open the hearts of none of them, of none of them. Now, Zach, how on earth is this good news? This is heavy. I mean, I'm letting you have it, but just both barrels, all right? How is this good news? Look at me. 
If you understand what I'm about to say, if you don't understand anything else I've said thus far, if you will take this home with you, this will change your life. This will break legalism. This will allow you to walk in the grace of God. Look right at me. This is the most important thing I'm going to say today. The reason this is good news because it mean, is because it means God's love for you is not based upon your performance. It's based upon something in God. It's based upon the fact that he just decided to set his love on you. All legalism, all works-based righteousness has to do with you trying to do better, to stop doing the bad things you're doing or to do more good things. When you realize that God decided to love you in eternity past, it breaks all of that. God's love for you cannot be based on your past because he loved you before you had one. His love for you cannot be based on how you're doing or not doing or where you're struggling because he just decided to set his love on you. His love is something in him that he just decides to set on you. So wait, you mean that God just decided to love me? Yes. He could have chosen somebody else? Yes. Why did he choose me? Because I'm so awesome? We know that's not true. He just decided to set his love on you. If you grasp that, it will break the bonds of legalism in your life because you now know that it doesn't matter how you do or you don't do because God already decided to love you why you were his enemy, that God shows his love for us and yet why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the greatest news in the world. You know who I think maybe most understands this idea of election? Children who've been adopted. Children who've been adopted. Because those parents just decide to set their love on that kid. They could have gone through a different organization. They could have gotten a different kid. They could have adopted from a different country. They could have gone to a different orphanage. They just say, I'm going to adopt this kid and take them into my family. They don't know whether or not the kid's going to be awesome or not yet. They don't know whether or not the kid's going to be obedient yet. They don't know any of that. They just say, for better or for worse, I'm going to love this kid not based on something in the kid, but based upon my decision to love them. If you can grasp that your salvation and the love God has for you is based in God who does not change, it will break this striving and trying to earn his favor and think that he's mad at you. It will break all that. It will break all that. As we get closer to summer, so as Carl mentioned in the announcements, uh, summer in Texas is pretty brutal. We don't really have seasons in Texas. We just have different modes of summer. It's like summer with allergies, summer with scary tornadoes, summer where everything dies, and then bitterly cold summer where there's ice and no snow. That's all we have. As we get closer to summer, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. My favorite time of year is when it's cold. I am a Christmas nut, all right? I'm that guy. I'm like whistling Christmas songs in July, and everybody's like, stop it, and just gets on their nerves. When Christmas, have you ever seen the movie Elf with Will Ferrell? If you haven't seen that movie, you need to see that because that's what I'm like. I go to the mall and there's Santa and I'm like, Santa, I know him, you know, and I get really excited and I, I get up on my roof and almost fall off every year trying to put up Christmas lights and I judge people who don't have Christmas lights. <laughs> like I drive by and I'm like, look, Katie, they're atheists probably. They don't have any Christmas lights up. I mean, I love Christmas. We keep our Christmas lights up till uh, April deal with it, HOA, you know. I love it. And this last year, because my wife was pregnant, we had a little ornament on our tree for our unborn baby girl. And it was this little stocking, and in that little stocking was a note that said, we love you, we're praying for you, we're so excited to meet you, so excited to meet you. Now, I don't know anything about this little girl. I don't know what her personality is gonna be like. 
I don't know whether she is just gonna be rebellious all the time. I don't know if at 18 years old she's just gonna walk away and just break my heart. I don't know anything about this little girl. But guess what? She already has an ornament on my tree because my love for her is based on being a loving father and not about how well she will or won't do. The reason this is good news is because if you realize this, what it means is that there's a sense in which God has put you as an ornament on his tree. He knew all the times you would fail, all the times you would mess up, all the grievous sins that you would do, everything you messed up with in college, all of that, and had already decided to set his love on you anyway. Unconditional election. Now, why does he do this? Verse 12. Verse 12. So that, that's the reason. He's going to give the reason why God has predestined us to be a part of his family. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why does God elect some people and not elect others? And by the way, he does both. It's what's called in theology double predestination. Let me read you a passage. Romans 9, 22 through 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Why does God decide to save some people and not decide to save others? You ever wondered that? Here is the only reason that the Bible gives us on that. Somehow, God receives glory from both. He receives glory from both. Let me ask a more fundamental question. What does God love more than anything else in the universe? That's a, that's a good question, right? Because whatever God loves the most is probably the thing that we should love the most. You'll hear pastors get up and they'll say, God loves you more than anything else in the universe. If that's true, then God should be worshiping you and so should we. No, the thing that God loves more than anything else is God. He loves his glory more than anything else. Now for us, that seems weird because that seems selfish. But the only reason that it seems selfish to us is because we're not worthy of that kind of glory, and God is. So if I want my wife, that's okay. She's my wife. If you want my wife, that's not okay. She's not your wife. In the same way, if I want God's glory, that's not okay because it does not belong to me. But for God to want God's glory is okay because it does belong to him. When God loves God, he loves the thing that should be loved the most. And what this text is saying is the reason that God has adopted us into his family and ordained for us to be saved is for his glory. Somehow, God receives glory both by showing mercy and by giving justice. To say it another way, every human being who's ever existed will glorify God. They will either be objects of his mercy or objects of his wrath, but God gets glory both ways. When someone repents and trusts in Christ, God shows his clemency and he shows his kindness and he shows his mercy and he shows his grace and he gets glory. When God justly damns a sinner, he shows his wrath, he shows his severity, he shows his justice, and he gets glory. God gets glory from both sides of that coin. Now, verse 13, verse 13. We're gonna see now that the God who elects to save you is the same God who keeps you. This will be some more good news. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay? This word here, where it says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, it's the word sfragizo in Greek. It's a fancy term. Impress your friends. Sfragizo. And what that word means is to mark something. Here's the definition. To mark with a seal as a means of identification 
so that the mark denoting ownership also carries with it the protection of the owner. This word that says where we're sealed with the spirit, this word is used in Greek literature for cattle and slaves who are branded. What is a branding with cattle? It's where you put your mark on them, your name on them, and if somebody tries to steal your cattle, you will protect them. Or in the ancient world, if you had a slave, you put your name or your mark on that slave as a mark of ownership, and if someone tries to attack the slave, you come to your slave's defense. What this text is saying is that we are marked by God that way, that he gives us the Holy Spirit as his brand, as his tattoo, as his symbol that he is going to complete the good work that he began in us. I had a a teacher when I was in high school, an English teacher named Mr. Moore, and he was awesome. And what he would do is he would have this big log in the front of the classroom, and if you said something stupid, you had to take that log to your desk because you got stumped, all right? So he'd say, get the stump, and I had to get the stump a lot. As you can tell, I've got kind of a big mouth. And so you'd go and you'd drag this stump to your desk. You could always tell where the dumb kids sat before you in class because there was like this little trail of bark kind of going up to the desk. Well, what this teacher realized is that sometimes it would be hard for students to move the stump, and sometimes you would have several students say something crazy at the same time, and so what he did is he had the woodshop teacher make these little pennants, these little necklaces with pieces of stump on them that you could wear around your neck, all right? So you could just, that, that would never go over by, well, by, today, by today's standards, by the way. We've become a little, uh, how shall I say, doughier. Uh, but, uh, but you would put on these little uh, stump necklaces and you could just look at the entire classroom and you could see who had the mark of having said a dumb question on them, okay? Now that's kind of a negative example, but in this text, it's a positive that as God looks across the sea of humanity, there are those who have the mark of Christ. You see this actually in the book of Revelation. There are those who have the mark of the beast, which is not a barcode or something like that. It means symbolically that you belong to the devil. And there are those in the book of Revelation that have the lamb's mark, that have God's names written on their foreheads. The idea is that there are those in humanity that belong to the devil, those that don't know Christ, and there are those who know Christ, that the Spirit is given to us as a seal, as a seal. By the way, how does one receive the Holy Spirit according to this text? How does one know whether or not they're elect according to this text? Let's read verse 13 again. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Hearing with faith. Hearing with faith. That's how you receive the Spirit. Okay? You don't have to have spoken in tongues to have received the Spirit or something like that. Uh, you see people in the Bible, like in Cornelius uh, in his household in Acts 10, who get the Holy Spirit even before they're baptized. They hear the gospel, they believe it, and they have the Spirit. All right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What you do to receive the Spirit is you repent and you believe in Jesus. When you hear the good news of salvation, you believe, you submit to it, and you're sealed with the Spirit. Your hope better not be in the fact that you've had some miraculous experience. Your hope better not be in your baptism. If you're you're trusting the fact that you did a water ritual to be saved, that water will bring you nothing but steam in the next world. Our hope is in Christ, 100%, and in Christ alone. When you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, what does the Spirit do? Who is the guarantee? Let me pause real quick. That word guarantee, by the way, is used in Greek to talk about when somebody puts a down payment on something. Like when you're gonna buy a house, you put a down payment down, and that means you're gonna buy the rest of the house. 
Well, God never puts a down payment on a house he doesn't intend to buy, okay? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise, again, of his glory? The same God who elects to save you is the same God who keeps you. The same God who ordains things for his glory is the same God that keeps you for his glory. Let me ask this question. Can a Christian lose their salvation, according to this text? No. No. And actually, that's the wrong question. It was never your salvation to begin with. The question is not, can I lose my salvation? The question is, can God lose my salvation? If someone truly is elect and they really have the Spirit, can they lose their salvation? And the answer, biblically, is no. No. What is God going to do? He's already paid for your sins with Christ on the cross. Is he going to somehow re-impute them to you? There's no double jeopardy with God. Is he going to put you back up for adoption? God doesn't put his kids back up for adoption. The question is not, can I lose my salvation? It's, can God lose my salvation? Let me say it stronger. If you can lose your salvation, then you have. If, if it's up to us, then we have. If God demands perfection, how many sins would you have to commit before you lost your salvation? One. Just one. No, here in this text, it's the Spirit that preserves you. Let me give you some other passages. Again, we're just going to run through this and sufficiently beat many dead horses this morning. 2 Corinthians one twenty-two, And who has put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. John 10, 28-29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, you're included in no one. That's a universal phrase. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Romans 8, 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Salvation is like this chain and a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And if that link is you or me, that chain will break. The same God who predestines is the same God who calls, is the same God who justifies, is the same God who glorifies. Earlier in this passage, it will talk about God foreknowing people. That doesn't mean that he looks ahead in the future to, deceit, to see what decision they're going to make. We've already talked about that, why that's ridiculous. That word foreknowledge is used, for example, in Romans when it says that God foreknew Israel. Does God look ahead in the future and see that Israel... Mic check. There we go. All right. Back to it. Must be some unconfessed sin in this room or something. My mic keeps cutting out. I'm kidding. Okay. Does God look ahead in the future and see that Israel's going to be faithful? No. He actually knows they're not going to be faithful. The reason God selects Israel is not because they're the prettiest girl at the ball, not because they're the biggest nation, but just because he's decided to set his love on Israel. And then it continues this chain. Those whom he foreknows, he predestines, et cetera, et cetera. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who takes away the Holy Spirit from you? No one. Not demons, not death, not riches or poorness or whatever it is, poverty. 1 Peter 1, 4-5, talking about our inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let me add some clarification here. 
if someone truly is a believer, they really do love Christ, they have the Holy Spirit, they cannot lose their salvation. Now, what about the guy you say, well, wait a second, I knew of a guy who was a Christian and he denied Christ and started living like the devil. It looks like he lost his salvation. When you say that guy was a Christian, what do you mean? Christians, by definition, are people who persevere. So no, you can't be a Christian and lose your salvation. You can walk away from the faith showing that you never really had it. You can show that you got maybe inoculated to the gospel so that you didn't catch the real thing. That happens all the time, where there are people that are assumed they're Christians because they've had a little bit, they've gotten to taste a little bit of the power of the Spirit, but they don't have the real thing. So no, a Christian can't lose their salvation. If you lost it, you never had it to begin with. If you lost it, you never had it to begin with. You can't say that the elect can lose their salvation. That doesn't even make any sense. God has a number of people he's going to save in his mind, and that number does not change. So a true Christian cannot lose their salvation. If one walks away from the faith and never repents and never turns back, then it just means that they never had it to begin with. When we say that someone's a Christian, we mean someone has believed the gospel and have been sealed by the Spirit. Not merely that they've prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or put a log on the fire at youth camp or been baptized or something like this. Something like this. And this is the greatest news in the world. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see this morning, because this is heavy. I'm afraid that people are going to get like torches and pitchforks after this. Okay? Here's why this is good. When you realize that the default position of everyone in here is hell, that none of us on our own would have chosen Christ, and that if our salvation was up to us to keep, we would lose it. Now you see why this is such good news. It means that God just decided to set his love on you and he will keep you, and you can't mess it up. And you can't mess it up. One of the best things a mentor of mine ever told me is he said, Zach, God has just decided to love you and you don't get to tell him who he can and can't love. I thought, yes, it was like a cold glass of water to my soul. I know this is difficult. If you have questions, don't freak out. Talk to us. Email us. We'll get coffee. We'll talk on the phone. We'll meet you, whatever you need. Jeff put out a blog this week on God's meticulous sovereignty. We have a lecture from our theological equipping class on predestination. We're going to continue hitting this theme as it comes up in Ephesians. But my hope is that you wouldn't hear see God as somehow mean or ungracious because he doesn't save people. If you realize that he doesn't have to save anybody and he saves one person, it's beyond what he's required to do. This is a much bigger view of God. The issue today is not really whether or not you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. The issue is whether or not you really believe that God is sovereign over everything or he's just sovereign over like 90% of stuff. That's really the question we're trying to answer today. So let me do this. I want to end with a few questions, uh, but I want us to kind of close our eyes just to think about these. You don't have to close. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand or anything. I just want you to think about these questions, okay? Number one, do you like the doctrine of election? Why or why not? Not is it true. I think we've seen in the text that it's pretty true in a lot of passages. My question is, do you like this doctrine? Why or why not? Number two. How can knowing about the absolute sovereignty of God fight worry in your life? For those of you who doubt, for those of you who are anxious, if God is this kind of in control of stuff, how does that fight anxiety and worry in your life? Number three, does the message of grace hit home when you realize that God's decision to love you is based on him and not you? That's everything. How do you fight legalism? Answer, the doctrine of election. 
it's really a place where you get to see that grace is grace. If the salvation of your kids, by the way, is up to you, they're toast. Your only hope is in God. If the salvation of your lost neighbor that you witness to is in you and your ability to present the gospel good enough, they're toast. Their only hope is in God, a God who's merciful. Number four, are you encouraged to know that the God who saves you is the God who keeps you? Who in here today really does love Jesus and just thinks that Jesus doesn't love them back? Number five, the Bible teaches both that we make real decisions and that God is sovereign. Which of these two facts do you have a tendency to emphasize at the expense of the other? Which of these two facts do you have a tendency to emphasize at the expense of the other? Do you downplay God's sovereignty and put all the weight of the world on your shoulders? Or do you downplay your responsibility and act like you're some sort of puppet or some sort of robot that God won't hold to account? Okay, everybody look back up at me. If you're someone in here and you say, okay, Zach, I believe what you're saying. Yeah, I know it's historic biblical Christianity. I know that it's in the Bible. How do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm elect? Here's the very simple answer, ready? Do you know Jesus? Do you love and trust Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus? Jesus says, all that comes to me, he will by no means cast out. The problem is with us, we don't want to come to him. Jeff gave a wonderful illustration last week when he said, when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, he's talking to a bunch of dead people on the floor. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come on, anyone. Nobody comes. Nobody comes because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. None seeks for God, no, not one. We're by nature children of wrath. We don't choose God. When we realize instead that what God does is he opens our heart. If you're wanting to come to Jesus, that is a mark of the Spirit's work in your life. A lady one time asked Charles Spurgeon, how do I know if I'm elect? And he said, if you're worried about it, that's a good sign. It's a good sign. So if you know Christ, you can rest in this. There's never someone who wants to come to Christ that Christ says no to. There's only people that don't want to come to him or people that he has called to himself. Let's pray as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I just confess that this uh, is a difficult, difficult, difficult text. And I pray right now uh, for everybody that just heard it. I mean, for some people, this might be the first time they heard it. For others, it's frustrating. For others, it's a time to rejoice. When I first heard this message, I thought, no way that can be true. And then when I realized it was, I fell on my face because I realized that you just decided to love me and there's nothing I could do about it. So I pray that you would encourage those in here. I pray that you would help those in there. I pray for those who are frustrated, that they wouldn't just hang on to their frustration and let it boil over, but rather that they would contact us and ask questions and use resources and really wrestle with this. Because what's at stake on this doctrine is your glory. It is whether or not salvation is 100% by your grace or not. I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that you would comfort those who are hurting. I pray that you'd be with me. I, I know I've got lost family members. This is difficult for me. And so I pray that you would save those that don't know you. For those that know you in my family, I pray that you would encourage them. For those that don't know you, that you would save them. And we just thank you for this time together to study your word. Would you be with us? In Christ's name, amen.